Hello, welcome to PhysioNote Sounds. This is the podcast for paediatric physiotherapists. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Cambridge in the UK. But our special guest is from Stanmore. Michaelis, you have also been to Stanmore. I've been to Stanmore. Lots of us go to Stanmore. It's a fascinating place, is it not? Well, 100%. You know, coming from Stanmore, it's something that uh, we're very proud to tell or our fellows and registrars that we were the uh, Stanmore boys. And we had the opportunity not only to be mentored by great surgeons, but also to work with great and very experienced physiotherapists. And uh, one of them is here with us today, Christine. Hello. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're most grateful to have you on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the unit in which you work, the sort of areas that you cover and how you ended up to work in a unit like that? You know, that's a lot of people's dream job, right? It really is. It really is. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I feel very lucky to work at Stanmore and have been there for the last eight and a half years. I have a confusing job title for some people, which is an extended scope paediatric practitioner. I'm a paediatric physiotherapist by training and have worked in this extended scope role for the last 16 years. The first eight at Chelsea Westminster Hospital in London, and then I moved to Stanmore eight and a half years ago. It was a new job created, so there wasn't anybody in quite my role before me. And the role has really developed over the last the last eight years to encompass three main streams of clinical work, one including neonatal hip dysplasia, which we'll be digging into a little bit, I think, in this podcast. Would you say that's your main interest, the neonatal hip dysplasia? I'm quite split across clubfoot uh, poncetti treatment and neonatal hip dysplasia, and I'm also really interested in development of normal variance caseload for paediatric physios, which I think is just such a great role for us to see those children that get referred to orthopaedic surgery who actually present largely with normal variance of growth and development. And with the right advice and physiotherapy and management, they can be discharged happy and understand that they don't have a pathology that they may otherwise be living with. It's interesting you say that because this topic came up exactly in a recent podcast we did with a couple of colleagues on triage. And I was not sure that you would consider seeing normal variants a useful way to spend your time. But the other guys said it most definitely was. They see great value in that reassurance that authority that parents really need to hear. You'd agree with that, I guess? I'd agree with it 100%. I think these are children that bounce between services, particularly in and out of primary care and clogging up secondary care and even tertiary care waiting lists. And really, they just need a a good solid assessment, um, screen for pathology, and then the right sort of advice and management, and they can be discharged um, happy. And I think that's that's where we can make the difference. So... In terms of the the neonatal hip work, though, what is your role within that? Is your service largely physio-led? Because I know many people working in teaching hospitals have exactly that model. Yes. So that was my first job, actually, in an extended scope role, was to set up and run the neonatal hip screening service at Chelsea Westminster alongside my compatriot ESPs. Um, and that was a sort of a piece of work that we did with the paediatric orthopaedic consultants who felt that we were well within our capability to run that clinic service. So we set up this one-stop clinic where we became responsible for um, triage of referral, assessment of babies, diagnosis using ultrasound and clinical examination and treatment of babies with hip dysplasia all within one clinic session. And we would rely on the consultants for babies that didn't fall into the protocol or that weren't responding as we expected. But essentially, we became independent practitioners in that sphere of work to allow really efficient, um, timely and 
hopefully expert-led management of hip dysplasia. When was this, Christine? When did you start up that one-stop service? So that was 2005 at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And we were one of the first centres to create those 8A clinical practice roles for physiotherapists. And when I came to Stanmore, we weren't running in a one-stop clinic. So eight years ago, there wasn't such a service at Stanmore. Um, the babies would be referred to consultants' waiting lists, then have to be reviewed by the consultant, sent separately to come back for ultrasound appointments, and then treatment decisions would be made from then, creating this quite long, drawn-out process. Lots of appointments for parents. So um, we set up our clinic about six years ago, I think, at Stanmore. Using the Chelsea and Westminster model, Using I guess that model, yeah. And just going back to when you first started, I'm curious, how was it received in the surgical community and in the physiotherapy community? Yeah, so we we certainly had, um, one thing we did do was come out of uniform, which I think made quite a big difference because the parents didn't want to see us, they wanted to see the doctors. And however many times you introduce yourself as a physiotherapist, if you're not wearing a uniform and you're in a clinic running a clinic, they think you're a doctor. That's very, Uh, very interesting, isn't it? So coming out of uniform was quite helpful in terms of just sort of separating our role a little bit to say, well, we're not working as physiotherapists in this role. We are using our physiotherapy skills and knowledge, but we are we are working in a, in a different way. So that was good. Um, the consultants loved it because we were doing the work and they felt we were safe. You know, as long as we had good communication with them, then they felt we were safe and running a good service. Baby hips are still the scariest condition that I treat, I would say. After 16 years, I've never quite lost my my antennae riding high for um, making the right clinical decision for that baby because it does feel like a risk sometimes particularly when, you know, we're going to hopefully delve in a little bit more to treatment options and available research and evidence for management of hip dysplasia, which is still a little bit uh, lacking in consensus. But I, I've, yeah, as long as we're well supported by our team of consultants, then I think it, it's a great role for physiotherapists to lead that one-stop clinic service. So was your biggest challenge being accepted by some families rather than clinicians? Yeah, I'd say our biggest challenge is, is, yeah, families accepting our clinical decision-making as physiotherapists rather than doctors, rather than other doctors who've always been very accepting. Although it's interesting, if you look at some of the literature, satisfaction with physiotherapy consultations often outshines medical consultations. You know, you guys just seem to be better able to communicate to patients. I think you have, you use your time better. I, I don't want to speculate too much on why your clinical skills are generally better than ours. But what I'm trying to say is families are normally very happy with physiotherapy consultations. We know this particularly from the Bonsetti work, which you're also involved in. But I suppose, you know, old attitudes take a little while to to change, don't they? Yeah, I think it's only that initial contact that would cause them a worry. And a lot of that is how they're presented when they enter the outpatient department in the hospital. Um, And we've had to do a bit of work with admin teams and outpatients who say, oh, you're seeing the physio today. And they're like, oh, no, I've come for an orthopaedic review for my baby in the baby hip clinic. So a lot of it is trying to just educate the whole experience, I think, so that parents aren't feeling that they're, you know, getting something that they they, they don't want. (laughs) Have you seen a difference between the clubfoot and the DDH clinic when it comes to parents' kind of attitude? Yes, I think in the DDH clinic, the parents are always incredibly upset and emotional at the first diagnosis because they've just had a baby and everything is very new and it's very scary. And I think the one-stop clinic is great, but it's a lot to take in, in one session. 
With Clubfoot, we do a lot of work in our uh, for antenatal counselling provision. So the majority of our Clubfoot patients are prepared. And that just makes a huge difference with these two conditions. For the baby hips, it's always a surprise. Um, for the club feet, mainly it's not a surprise. And they've had a bit of time to get used to the idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell us about the one-stop clinic then. What's one-stop about it? How, how does this all work? So the babies are referred to the to the hospital. In our, in our hospital, they're referred to five different paediatric orthopaedic consultants. But those referrals are all streamed directly to me. And they are triaged into the baby hip clinic they're all seen within two weeks of receipt of referral we've done a lot of work to make that happen so we see them within two weeks of the referral arriving in the hospital they come to children's outpatients and they arrive in a clinic room where there is a team of uh, myself and a clinical nurse specialist and a consultant radiologist and we have an ultrasound machine in our clinic room The family arrive and we do a clinical assessment, uh, subjective history and then clinical examination of the baby. If they've had previous ultrasound scans, then we will hopefully have had them, got them already to be able to review. Christine, can I ask you something before we go there? So the referrals, tell us about the referrals. So these are unstable hips, all of them, or are these also hips that have risk factors, etc.? Yes, sorry, I didn't make that clear. So so Stanmore is a tertiary orthopaedic centre and we operate as such for our baby hips as well. So we don't have a maternity unit at Stanmore. We have strong links with three local maternity hospitals and the babies born in those hospitals who require screening have them at the local maternity unit and the maternity unit refers us pathology identified on ultrasound scan but the, maternity, the neonatal unit will also refer us directly babies who have obvious clinical signs of hip dysplasia. So we have two streams, really. One, a direct clinical stream from a, a neonatal hip check postnatally that they're concerned about, and one stream from an abnormal scan. And you would see both streams within two weeks? Both streams within two weeks. And how many, how, how many ba- babies are we talking about? Not, like a, it's a not week. huge numbers. Well, we see 100, 100 to 120 babies a year. That's a lot. Um, and about 45, 30 to 40% of those will have pathology. So we still see, even though we're tertiary and we want to see pathology, we still see a reasonably high number of normal babies. Yeah. And how often is it is that clinic? So the clinic's weekly. Um, we run every Monday morning and we have capacity for up to 11 babies in clinic. So we see between four and eight on most weeks. We have seasonal spikes in hip dysplasia referrals, which I'm, I don't know if you see. When, is your, centers, when, when is your seasonal spike? <laughs> Eastern now is seasonal Eastern. spike. So spring. Yeah, there's a spike it, in spring. It, it's, um, it's very <laughs> funny because I, I work at the Villain, obviously, and we have St. Thomas's uh, maternity. So for us, the spike comes when we go over there and we provide them teaching about right. clinical instability. <laughs> so then we get most of the referrals. We have to do it every six months. And if for whatever reason we don't, the new midwives or FY doctors, whoever, do the NIPI examination, then we don't get referrals. So that's, uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's due to the, uh, to the season. <laughs> but but that's, that's reality. But, but tell us a bit more now. So, so I interrupted you. So you're there with the radiologist, the CNS, uh, you take the history, and then you would examine. The radiologists, I presume, they don't examine. They go then straight to the ultrasound scan directly afterwards. So I, or the clinical nurse specialist, would do a clinical examination. So we do a sort of orthopaedic MOT of the baby, looking generally at them, and then just go through our tests. So Galeazzi, Ortolani and Barlow tests. And then we uh, scan the baby 
and we have a an, the graph cradle using the sonograph um, sonofix and sonoguide which works really well so it's a sort of molded cushion can, can i say i mean whoever listens to this podcast i've been trying to get this cradle at the Evelina since i became a consultant but i think the radiologists who do the old sounds because do not appreciate this they don't it's the best it's the most fantastic it's the easiest it's the fastest way Whoever hears it and has, you know, have a DDH, can please go and get the cradle and yeah. tell me how you've done it so I can do it with my own radiologist. But it's it's always tough. We had to apply for charity funding, so the RNOH charity bought our Sono Guide and Sono Fix for directly, us directly from Austria. From cha- yeah, charity funds directly from Austria. Excellent. It costs almost two thousand pounds. Yes, but it is well worth it because, as you say, the baby lies in the cradle. They yeah. are completely comfortable and happy, and it takes two seconds to get the right picture. Honestly, um, guys, it using takes. The setup. It, it's oh, really if, good. If it doesn't take two seconds, it takes ten seconds for each hip. Do you tell them to come like faster than they, they they get breastfed just before they come in? They don't need to. The babies are just happy. Yeah. They're just happy in the cradle. It's very comfortable. We have half an hour appointments, so it's, everything's done within the half an hour assessment and scan. And then we, yeah, we go through the scan with the parents. So we have a really good setup on an iPad, which models the ultrasound picture that the parents are seeing with a hip x-ray. So it's really nice to show them what they're looking at in terms of what they can understand a bit more, which is a sort of fully formed bony hip. So we talk about that. And then if we have diet, then I would, we would diagnose hip dysplasia. So I would usually take clinical responsibility for that alongside the radiologist. It's the, my name on the letter at the end of the day. And we would then proceed to treatment and fitting of a pavlic harness with education to the parents. We always start harness on full time so that the parents don't have to worry about doing anything to it. And we would then bring them back a week later. I just want to say one more thing about the cradle. Not only it's it's very easy and fast, it's also the the most efficient way to get it because it doesn't move. And then you get the uh, the ultrasound probe. Uh, it, it's static, so you can get the best pictures, and then you can really appreciate the uh, severity of the dysplasia there. Yeah, I think tilting errors are really a, definitely a big problem in scanning. And yes. with the Sonoguide, it's directly holding the, the probe in a neutral alignment. So those tilting errors where you can make the hip look better than it is. And um, I presume are, you, all are, your scans are graph scans. All our scans are graph. We are all graph trained and we're very specific about our graph measurements. This is fantastic. We, we do the same thing at the event. And, uh, you know, graph should be the way forward for everyone, really, who, uh, who listens to us. I have to say, Gavin, I'm so impressed by Christine Douglas here. You know, she's doing it better than any other consultant. And it, it's not just about the uh, clinical practice. Christine, you're also involved in, in other stuff, isn't it? You're, you're involved into the uh, BISCOS consensus group for DDH. Yes, so this was a great opportunity. So last year, Biscos launched three consensus projects, one looking at osteomyelitis, one with Clubfoot and one with DDH. Uh, So I signed up to the group and there was a great mix of orthopedic consultants, physio practitioners, nurse specialists. I think there's 20 of us altogether. Chair was um, Marcus Kachburian, ably assisted by Alexander Arvold. And yeah, it was really hard. (laughs) It was a really tough project, actually because there is such a lack of consensus in how we diagnose hip dysplasia, how we treat hip dysplasia. Um, So we were aiming to gain consensus for treatment within the first 12 weeks. But yeah, it was tough. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of arguments. (laughs) 
but the consensus went through the Delphi process, went out to Biscos members, and we have got a consensus, which is great. Reassuring for me in my service that the consensus is, is our current practice, which is great. So yes, a focus on graph, a focus on more research, discussion around NIPE guidelines that changed last year to extend... Tell us a bit more about this, because I know you, you have the latest... Yeah, so the NIPE guidelines changed in April 2021 and caused a lot of controversy. As I said earlier, we'd worked quite hard actually to to gain a, a rapid referral process because we feel quite strongly that the earlier we treat hip dysplasia, the better. So we would aim to see children from two weeks of age. And that was, the, that was supported by the NIPE guidelines. They then changed to put both categories of children both categories of babies, so those identified via clinical examination and those with risk factors for DDH all together in one group of NIPE positive children. And that delayed the referral stream to recommend ultrasound at four to six weeks. For us, that had an even greater knock-on effect because if a child isn't receiving their initial ultrasound till six weeks at a local centre, by the time they come to us, they're going to be eight weeks old. And these children can have graft three, type three or four dislocatable or dislocated hips. And we know they're not going to respond as well to treatment. So we chose to not follow the NIPE change of guidelines and instead start a project looking at correlation of age and outcome in our historic caseload. The Northern Irish team led by Aidan Cosgrove did the same and have beaten us to it with a publication of their work, which shows that they have got positive correlation between improved outcomes and treatment prior to four to six weeks for dislocatable and dislocated hips. So I think our project will show similar and there'll be pressure on the NIPE team to possibly make some adjustment to their guidelines. Well, 100%. I mean, this study from, from Northern Ireland, it was uh, presented in the recent BISCOS meeting a few weeks ago. And uh, I've just came back from Copenhagen, where we had the European Pediatric Orthopedic Society was presented there. And everybody was talking about this, how that's wrong. At the same time, I have to say, at the Evelina, we did the same thing. We did not change the guidelines. We thought it was COVID, you know, we thought we'd just stick to what we have because we also we managed to do it quite well and in time. And one of our maternity midwives, she's actually part of the NIPI committee national group. So uh, they know about this and they know that BISCOS and and evidence show different. So I think they're they're very keen to reassess this. So I'm not going to be surprised if very soon they will change the NIPI guidelines, probably to what it was there before. Mm -hmm. Yes. Christine, can I just ask, how did you train to get into this advanced practice role that you're in? I ask because it's something that has come up in previous podcasts. I understand that advanced practice in physiotherapy is becoming increasingly an academic game, that you have to have certain degrees and certain qualifications. Did you come through that route or did you kind of learn it on the job and just get to the role that you're in through the experience that you have? Yes, we were one of the first set of extendoscope practitioners in the UK at Chelsea and Westminster 16 years ago. And it was very much our consultant orthopaedic surgeons that supported us to develop those roles. And they were very clinical, clinically orientated. For baby hips, we all trained on the graph course, which we felt was really important and gave us the, the skills to be able to run the clinic in that way. And I think with Ponsetti, similar, we've just learned on the job, really. I'm just in the very last stages of completing my master's degree, which I feel is a really valuable part of advanced clinical practice. And now going backwards, I wouldn't 
new ESP roles, you have to have a master's already. But I slightly did it a bit backwards. But my master's now has given me loads more insight and has promoted my academic career progression as well. So, yeah, I've published a couple of papers last year and looking to to continue with more publication. And I think that's where the the difference is now with the advanced clinical practice. Yes, you need the training and experience, but the the master's academic qualifications push you into more of a research focus. Yeah, I mean, all of that is good stuff. But how do you find the time to do your master's? How do you get released from your clinical duties? And what about funding? How do you overcome those challenges? They're huge challenges. So I've, I've been lucky enough to study at UCL, who offer a modular M- MSc approach where you can spread your MSc over five years. So it's taken me four to do mine. And I've done two 15 credit modules a, a year, which has been manageable. Uh, dissertation last year was a lot to, to manage alongside work. But yeah, I've been really lucky to do it in that way. Have you basically had to do it in your spare time? Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. And not only that. I know Christine, she's she definitely done quite a few of our courses uh, with Orthopedic Research UK, uh, Gavin, which in that respect, yes, it is all very good. But th- we were discussing it with, with Hazel and Johan uh, on one of previous podcasts. There needs to be proper accreditation on all these master degrees or courses for those people who really do this extra extra step from their personal life and from their work to do this. And so most of the times they have to fund these themselves. Because even funding is is a quite a big challenge in most institutions, isn't it? Yeah, funding is a, a real challenge. I mean, I've been very supported in my master's journey from Stanmore. The first year I was funded, second year I was funded part, 50%, and that's continued 50% funding through the hospital. But our official CPD allocation is £1,000 for three years of study. Yeah. So that, that's going to cover one master's module. So, yeah, it's a lot our trust has been very supportive, but other trusts don't have the money to support to support further education. Where do you see the role of extended scope practice or advanced practice? You are in a position now that I guess maybe when you started off as a physio, you never would have seen yourself doing these kind of roles. So where do you think the future holds? I think the future absolutely stands with the NHS trusts developing more expertise acknowledging clinical expertise in increased uh, status roles so consultant physiotherapy roles are the way forward I think for this we have two at Stanmore already in the area of spinal care and upper limb management so yeah I have a business case in for a consultant physiotherapy post in paediatrics we'll wait and see what happens with that but it's been really interesting uh, studying at master's level and seeing the level of expertise that is employed in lecturing and teaching and the, the vast majority of those experts have left NHS work and work in private practice because I think you know after 16 years of being an ESP I'd like to go up to the next level of job um, and there isn't one So I think we need to create those roles in order to retain clinical expertise within the NHS and support staff. Have you got an academic role, maybe? I think both, yeah. I think at this level um, of work, you tend to develop a bit of an academic career as well. And Stan was hugely supportive of that in terms of research. But I also think, yeah, there needs to be more of a career structure for physiotherapists uh, and allied health, health professionals generally, because we kind of get to the level of where we are and stay. <laughs> in a consultant role then, so do you foresee there'd be an academic angle to that and a teaching angle to that? And what about 
practical clinical work are there other roles that you can see yourself getting into or your colleagues yeah, so as part of the proposal for a consultant post, there's development in all areas of work. So in the hip clinic, we would pr- propose to replace the consultant radiologist with myself doing hip scans and then liaising with the consultant radiologist for supervision and support. But that would release the radiologist from four and a half hours of clinical work a week. So there's a cost saving element to that. So that that would be one area where we would where I'd see a sort of step up in practice. Um, and then also public, you know, publishing. We've published earlier this year with our virtual clinic developments in managing our babies in harness that we, we introduced over COVID and have continued with, found very effective. So, yeah, we're, we're doing more projects all the time. Sure. And what about the teaching side? In what way are you going to be able to pass on these skills that you've learnt to your junior colleagues coming through? Yeah, so we ran a neonatal hip course for about five years, actually, an annual course from Stanmore. And this was directed towards physiotherapists, paediatricians, GPs. And actually, we stopped running the course because we just didn't really get, we didn't get enough applicants or delegates to come on the course. So, yeah, I don't know how teaching needs to be different. We go into our referring hospitals and do individualised teaching to departments. I mean, I must say, you know, I think the ORUK paid physio courses are excellent, um, my experience of them anyway, and certainly contributing to specific areas of teaching within a, an online format, I think has a really big reach. We've got a special interest group as well nationally, where we look at physiotherapists interested in DDH. I've just joined that recently. We meet a few times a year. I don't know, Michaelis, it seems to me that once again, Stan Moore is up there at the forefront. I, I, I am speechless. The pioneering work. I, I, I am speechless. You know, Christine, you know, you're a role model. I mean, you're talking about teaching, you're talking about academics, you're talking about a, an outstanding practice. One thing that you remind me, you know, when I did the graph course and I was, uh, he was coming to Greece at the time and I was instructor to his course then for the, uh, for, for a couple of years. And then he was always saying this thing that, you know, you have a radiologist, an orthopedic consultant, a mum, a pediatrician, a physiotherapist. He trains them all to how to do the ultrasound scans because obviously in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, everybody who is trained, they can do the ultrasound scans. And then he asks the question, who do you think does the best ultrasound scans? And the answer is very simple, the physiotherapist. It's not the radiologist or the orthopedic surgeon because they're biased, while the physiotherapist, they really take a very neutral. And of course, the pediatrician, they're not as good as the physiotherapist. So I see what you just said. I think, I think this is the way forward. And Christine is one of the, um, the first ones and a very, very experienced ones in the UK. There's so many others that listen to this podcast and they do this, maybe not for 16 years, but for five or seven, and they should have this kind of ambition. And somehow, maybe centrally, there should be kind of a movement just to formalize this in, in more institutions rather than just time. We, we should be doing that. Absolutely agree. Just thinking about the time, we should probably wind up now, but it seems like a good note to end it on. Christine, we are most grateful to you for sharing your training, your experience, the clinical practice you do and your ambitions for the future. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope those of you listening in have enjoyed the podcast too. So please do join us again. There's plenty more where this came from on Physio Note Sounds. Thanks very much. Goodbye.